Hello everybody, welcome to the first episode of 2022, the first Ask Abhijit live episode of 2022. I wish you all a very happy Gregorian New Year to those of you who celebrate it. I hope that you have a very successful, happy, prosperous and healthy New Year. So, uh, as you know, this is a this is a session in which I'm going to take questions from the comments. So let us take a very appropriate first question for this year. Okay, so this is the first question. Bring something new to your channel and please tell us your new plans for 2022. Any books in the making, new YouTube channels, new documentaries, etc. Very good question. So it's time to make the announcements of what's going to change this year. So in the past year, I did 72 live streams. Ask Abhijit. I took thousands of questions. It was a very unstructured year. I was just taking your questions and I was answering them all. And I was releasing a lot of short clips throughout the past six months or so. so the first thing that changes this year is that there will be no more short clips. That ends right, right away. The second thing is again more of the same. I'm going to do... A hundred. I'm planning to uh, target a hundred episodes of the Ask Abhijit show this year. So that's going to continue as before. The third thing, and this is new, I am planning to have at least 50 conversations with guests on this channel right here. So that is something which I have done only once or twice before on this channel. I interviewed Dr. Subhash Kak and I, and I spoke with uh, Abhijit Ayermitra. This year, I'm going to take it to a whole different level. I'm going to do at least minimum 50 such conversations with selected guests. So I am a very curious person. I have lots of interests, very diverse interests. So I'm going to call people from different backgrounds, people who are doing interesting work, interesting people from different fields. And the objective is to have an interesting extended conversation with them. I want to learn things from various people. I want you all to gain gain uh, interesting new knowledge and learn new things from these guests. So in case you all have some suggestions for me to call some people, let me know in the comments below. I will certainly uh, take all of your suggestions very seriously. I cannot promise that I'll invite all of them. But I will certainly take it very seriously and invite as many of them as I can. And I also have some people in mind over the long run. So that is uh, something new that's going to happen on this channel. Apart from this, I am going to do 50 documentaries on one of my other channels. So I have a couple of other two, three other channels uh, that are not really very active right now. One of these channels is going to see the release of 50 documentary style videos starting from the second or third week of january and it's going to continue week week upon week so that is the thing now am i going to be is are there any books in the making yes it is now time that i should write some books so one book that i'm going to be writing this year is i can i would call it tentatively the best of Ask Abhijit. so over the past uh, six months i've answered thousands of questions and many of you have said uh, have asked me for references that, you know, where did you get this information for? So I'm going to take, let's say, the best 150 questions, uh, answer them in the written form, and provide references. So, so I've already answered the questions. You don't need to buy the books. But in case you want uh, it in written form with references, you can go ahead and buy the book whenever it is released. I am planning to do it as fast as possible, next five, six months maximum. So the best, the best of Ask Abhijit, that's the first book. The second book I'll be working on is 
an overview of Indian history the past 70,000 years. Right, so uh, it will be an easy to read book, a reasonably fast paced book, easy to read for everybody in which I will be touching upon the entire uh, entirety of the past 70,000 years of Indian history. And I'll bring out many facets of, facets of Indian history that most people don't know about. So I will try my best to uh, make it as informative and, and put out as much new information as I can in this book. So that is the second book. And I also want to write a third book in this year. Uh, let's uh, The working title I could give it is uh, Astrophysics for Everyone. So it will cover, uh, it will give in, uh, knowledge about the Earth, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, and everything in between. It will again be an easy to understand book. I think even a 13 year, the target which I have is that even a 13 year old kid should be able to understand it. It should not be complicated and uh, difficult to understand. So these are the things that I want to do this year. A hundred Ask Abhijit episodes, at least 50 conversations, 50 documentaries, three books, and some other things as well. So that is a ton. It's not a ton of work. It's a megaton, a gigaton of work that I'm going to be doing this year. So, um, so that is the plan. It's certainly a whole lot of work, but if you want to reach the moon, you have to aim for the star. So, so that's the philosophy I am adopting. And uh, let's have a review on December 31 and see how much of this I have accomplished. But I, I am planning, I'm targeting to accomplish all of this. So that I hope answers this question. Okay, Karan says, how to become successful? And Rohan says, I know you don't get such questions very often, but since it's the new year, do you have any advice on how one should set and achieve his or her goals? Good questions. So like I just said, I have these enormous goals in front of me for the year 2022. Very ambitious goals, so it will require a lot, a lot of hard work from my part, from my side. Now, to become successful and for goal setting, you have to first, we have to first understand the difference between a goal and a dream. Understand the difference between a goal and a dream. A dream is, I want to have three books at the end of the year. A dream is, I want to have a hundred Ask Abhijit episodes by the end of the year. A dream is, I want to have at least 50 conversations, extended conversations with guests by the end of this year. These are dreams. Now, to make these dreams reality, you need a plan, which is a process. What is a process? You wake up in the morning, then you do this, 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 this every day. That's a process. This, these many hours for this work, this many hours for this task, and so on. And the goal that you should have is to follow the process faithfully every day. So the process is the goal, and your big, what you call goals, are your dreams. It is the process that converts those dreams into reality if you work hard day in and day out. And the thing is, when you make a process, if you start implementing it, you will need, find the need to tweak the process. Because once you start walking the, walking the talk, then, then you will realize that maybe the process isn't very efficient. So after a few days, you will realize you will have to change some parts of the process. After a couple of weeks, you will have to change something else. After a month or two months, once you have made lots of small tweaks, that's when the process will work as a well-oiled machine. So that is the goal you must have. To make a good process, keep improving it, and make the process the machine that takes you towards your dreams. So the, so the process itself has to be the goal. That's how you 
become successful and that's how you set and achieve goals which are actually dreams so that's what i can say in brief about this okay harsh says can we say that the british occupation of india was also because of the moguls as farooq siar gave the diwani rights of bengal to the east india company the most wealthy province of india that's a very interesting question i am sure none of you most of you have not heard of this individual called farooq siar he was one of the later turkic uh, kings of of uh, a small portion of northern india and uh, so to explain what really happened let me uh, show you a very interesting article let me share that article with you uh, so that is the best way that in which i can explain it because this article uh, brings this entire story out very well so let me share my screen with you one second okay so this is an article by rakesh krishnan simha the mogal tax break that cost india its freedom so exactly 300 uh, let me just read out the first first uh, few paragraph so that you understand in detail so 300 years ago approximately the mogal emperor farooq siar issued a farman that issued, that allowed the east india company to conduct duty free trade mint its own coins and the right to fortify its garrisons allowing the english to establish colonial rule in india with relative ease so since the year 1600 the english had been trying to gain a foothold in india but they were not able to break the monopoly of the portuguese and the dutch so the portuguese and the dutch were far ahead of the english around that time most of the early embassies sent by the english monarch had returned home empty handed 150 years after its foundation the east india company was only a zamindar a landlord at chennai and kolkata and a mere trader at its inland factories but patience being an english virtue began to pay dividend and a big one at that by the 1650s the english had obtained exemption from road tax in the provinces of agra awadh and adjoining areas from the beginning the sole aim of the english was to avoid payment of the usual taxes and tolls that were paid by everyone else now in november 1715 an english embassy led by john sermon had a stroke of luck when one of its members william hamilton a physician managed to relieve the emperor farooq siar of severe pain in his groin peter ober quotes quotes from reports of the embassy to kolkata the emperor celebrated his recovery by a public darbar 30th november 1715 at which he rewarded hamilton with a splendid gown diamond rings a crest with precious stones gold buttons set with jewels a miniature gold set of whatever uh, of of uh, medical instruments an elephant a horse and rupees 5000 however the english had not come for these small trinkets they hung around delhi for two more years for the real prize in april in april 1717 the embassy hit paydirt when when farooq siar issued three separate farmans for each of the three presidencies of kolkata mumbai and chennai other demands submitted by the embassy were con- con- were covered by secre- separate directives or hasbul ul hukums when the farmans reached kolkata chennai and mumbai the presidents and councils received it with regal honors and so on 
so in return for a paltry payment of rupees 30000 per year the farman gave the english a virtual carte blanche the right to export and import goods in bengal without paying taxes permission to purchase 38 villages surrounding the three already held by the company the right to keep a garrison that is a military garrison and to further fortify kalikata the right to issue dastaks or passes which would ensure the free passage of goods under the name of the company without being checked at custom houses the right to mint gold and silver coins which would be honored throughout the mughal empire their own currency complete freedom to establish factories at any place the provinces were to provide the company with assistance the company would retain its old privilege of tax exemption in hyderabad province no increase in the company's existing rent at chennai exemption from paying all customs and dues at surat and the company's servants were not permitted were, were permitted to trade but were not covered by the farmans they were required to pay the same taxes and in in merchants etc so this is what this this individual farooq siar the so called mughal emperor did he gave this incredible uh, this incredible largest to the east india company he essentially converted east india the east india company from a trading organization into a political force in india so to answer the question yes the british occupation of india was to a great um, to to a, to a great extent because of this action of the so called emperor farooq siar who gave all these rights to the east india company in bengal and other pra- other places and that's how the east india company was overnight transformed into a political force and a military force in india okay knowledge seeker says how often in a century or so does bharat get a great leader by seeing the patterns of history so let's let's examine the great leaders of of uh, of the past so when we talk about the last great leader that india had i can think of the great chhatrapati shivaji maharaj right so he was he lived in the 17th century between 1630 and 1680 so that's the last great king of india he set the foundation for what would eventually become the great maratha empire but it is because of him and the and the groundwork that he did and the framework the political and military framework that he created that the maratha empire was able to essentially reconquer all of india from the turks so the last great leader, leader is chhatrapati shivaji maharaj the 17th century before him we had two great leaders that i can think of that i consider great the two great chola emperors raj raj chola in the late 10th and early 11th century and his son the great rajendra chola in the 11th century so raj raj chola set the foundation in southern india in in most in, in in the entirety of the indian peninsula almost and his son rajendra chola took that forward and established an enormous maritime empire because of his powerful navy so these are the two great emperors of the chola dynasty in the 10th and 11th century before that you had lalitaditya muktapida the great kashmiri emperor who conquered great parts of central asia and much of india so he lived in the 8th century before him we had the great samudragupta the great emperor samudragupta who lived in the 4th century he conquered enormous parts i mean he had an enormous empire of his own before samudragupta the last 
before him the previous great emperor of india was the great kanishka kanishka the great in the second century ad and before kanishka the great you had people like uh the before him we had the great emperor chandragupta maurya in the third uh, in the fourth and third centuries bce so from this from this list from this partial list of great emperors of india kings of india one could say that you come across a great king or emperor in india or a great great leader one would say in india once every 300 to 500 years once every 3 to 500 years you get a great leader in india so it's been about how long has it been since the great shivaji maharaj died 1680 17 18 19 20 it's about 350 years it's been so i think it's high time for us to great a greatly uh, to to get a great leader of that caliber because india needs that right now so india has seen rises and falls ups and downs but the past 1000 years have been uniformly bad so it's time for india to discover a new great leader who can pull india out of the current mediocrity it is in and propel india again to the greatness that is rightfully her own right so let's see how that goes okay avinash says how can we define universe what came first matter or empty space good question so i would define universe what is the universe it is all of space time and everything that exists within it which is radiation matter and it also in- includes all the physical laws that govern energy and matter so that's what i would uh, use as the definition of universe that is what the universe is now what came first matter or empty space what came first was space time and pure energy so in the very very initial moments after the big bang uh, the universe was just energy pure energy extremely uh, highly compressed condensed energy into a very small point so it was space time and energy and the the, the grand unified force out of which all the other forces have eventually emerged so that is what fa- what came first not matter not empty space space time and pure energy that's what came first okay gokul says how did jupiter become a failed star so um what is a star a star is a big mostly spherical uh ball of mostly hydrogen gas that is undergoing fusion because of the enormous weight of the gas of the gas so this gas because of the force of gravity compresses the insides of the star and that ignites fusion because of the enormous forces that are involved in this so that's how uh, you have the ignition of fusion inside a newborn star and that is what uh, what makes stars shine and glow and give off in, in a, the radiation that we see so that's why the sun is so bright because there is a fusion reaction going on inside which is which is converting hydrogen into helium and giving off various uh and giving off electromagnetic radiation in various spectra including the infrared which is heat and visible light and other other uh, other frequencies of light so that is what a star is now why do some people call jupiter a failed star a jupiter see the jupiter is a gas giant planet it's made up of gas it's a big ball of gas just like a star but so some would characterize it as a failed star because it has not been able to ignite fusion within its core 
because it is not large enough. So that's why one could characterize Jupiter as a failed star. Similarly, you could also characterize Saturn as a failed star. That too is a big ball of gas. Mainly, I would say, hydrogen with some other impurities sprinkled in. So a failed star is a big ball of gas, mainly hydrogen, that has not succeeded in uh, in igniting nuclear fusion within its core. You also have these brown dwarfs that are like somewhere between a star and a gas giant. So that's another category of, of uh, failed stars. So I think the threshold for a gas giant becoming a star is about 93 Jupiter masses, if I can, if I recall correctly. So you need to be way bigger than Jupiter in, or, in, in order to become the smallest category of stars. So, uh, yeah, so that's why some people would call Jupiter a failed star. Hasmukh Solanki says, we, in the, we understand the border dispute between countries. However, within the country, then the, when the whole of India is one, then why do some states fight for a region not in their territory? Like in the northeastern states between Assam and Mizoram, then you have Maharashtra and Karnataka, etc. Why is this? How is this dif dispute different from that between countries? Yeah, this is an interesting question. You have several border disputes between various states. You have the region of Belgaum that is currently in Karnataka that Maharashtra also has a claim towards. Then uh, Assam and Mizoram also there is some some minor border dispute. Then you have Nagaland which claims the entirety of the Northeast more or less, even parts of Burma. They call it Nagalim or whatever it is. And so on, you know, you have these territorial disputes. You also have this dispute about water, water sharing, the Kaveri water dispute. It's been, it's been going on for, for decades, I think. So you have, so what is the, what is the root cause of all these disputes? The root cause of these disputes is the way the British divided India into provinces and in which we have continued as states in India. So the British divided India into linguistic provinces. A, a, a province it was one in which a certain language was prevalent. So today that is the Indian states and the Indian states are also more or less divided on linguistic lines. right? But then you have the problem that some states are enormous and some states are very small. Take Uttar Pradesh. It is as big, almost as big I mean as half of Europe I would say. Its population is almost the same, very similar to the population of the United, United States. It's just one state in India. Then you have little states in the Northeast, like Manipur and Mizoram, etc., whose population is, is microscopic compared to Uttar Pradesh. Right. So you have this incredible disparity in India. And because states have valuable resources their politicians want to want to acquire more resources so in case you have a linguistic uh, region which is kind of mixed then both states would claim it and because if you have one more district under you you can extract more resources out of it more tax more revenue more whatever else that the politicians do so that's why they want it and that's why you have these disputes see the thing is at the lower levels in india in the lower levels in politics, at state level, not state, maybe state level also. I'm not saying it's everywhere, but there is certainly the presence of this. There is a lot of corruption. There's a lot of corruption in India at lower levels, district level, uh, municipal level, ward level, etc. 
And if you have an extra district in your hands, you get to extract more, whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying this thing is prevalent all across India. There are places I'm sure which are not corrupt. I hope so. Uh, I'm sure there are, but you know, this, this is the kind of thing which you have. And that's why politicians want to grab more territory. And that's why there are these territorial disputes. That's one of the reasons. So what is the solution to this? What's the solution? The solution is very simple. Have smaller states. Why can't India have a hundred states, all of which have more or less the same size? Now I can hear what people are going to say. No, you're trying to break up our unity. You're going to you're trying to destroy our unity. What about Tamil Nadu? You want to break up Tamil Nadu into fifty into small pieces. What about Gujarat? You want to break Gujarat into small pieces and so on. I'm not saying we need to break it up. Why can't you have five Tamil states, or or five Gujarati speaking states, or twenty three uh, states that are made out of UP? See what the thing is that when you have smaller states, smaller administrative units, then you have far better administration and far more accountability of the politicians towards the people. When a state has a population of 300 million, how will you approach the chief minister with whatever problem you have? But if you have a state with a population of just 1 million, the chief minister is far more approachable and the officials are far more approachable. So if you have smaller administrative divisions, then you have better administration, you have more accountability. So that is the way in which perhaps India's leaders should take India towards. It is all about empowering the people, making the state, the system more accountable and delivering better governance. Right. So maybe that is something that uh, India's Leaders, not politicians. Politicians are not leaders, but the real leaders of India. Maybe it is something they should consider going forward in the long run. Maybe that would empower the people better. It would make India a far better governed nation. So there is something that could possibly be explored. Maybe an India with a hundred states, all of a reasonably similar sizes and populations. That would make India a far better governed nation. So this is just a thought. All right. Uh, is the government spending in the wrong places, like bullet trains and private trains? Aren't various yojanas waste of taxpayers' money and as they are a free medium to earn for the ones who do not want to work? I don't think any other country has these types of schemes in the developed world. You know, in 1945, Japan was a nation that was in ruins. Japan was smoldering. Smoke was emanating from its major urban centers. Every single large city in Japan, or even medium city in Japan, had been, had been bombed to the ground by the Americans. All industries were destroyed. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were nuked. Right? Japan was was essentially in ruins, the whole country. And in a few decades, it emerged as the number two economy in the world, as a genuine, bona fide financial superpower, economic superpower. And what drove the transformation of Japan? It was high technology and investing this technology in creating the infrastructure that unifies the nation and allows people greater mobility and greater connectivity so that it, it 
essentially makes running businesses and industries and governance and everything like that far easier and what was behind this one of the major components in this was the shinkansen bullet train the bullet train connected the whole of japan and made the country in a way smaller you could reach any place in a couple of hours and they made it affordable uh, as per the per capita gdp of japan so that is something that transformed japan now we have seen we have witnessed the rise of china in the past two decades one of the factors that has propelled this rise of china is the chinese bullet train network china has today they have built over the past two decades the greatest the largest bullet train network in the world high speed trains and because of this people are able to travel all across china very quickly it's it's enabled people to to uh, commute from from their residence to a far off place to a place of work and come back in the night that sort of thing so if you invest in this sort of connectivity this sort of infrastructure it pays back hundreds of times you know the kind of investment you made in the long run it's like why do we need rockets why do we need isro what does it do for the common man and woman and child it pays you back i mean the satellite capabilities that we have they empower indians so much we don't even understand the impact of that technology our day to day life would not be possible without the technology similarly bullet trains are needed india has a horribly outdated railway system you want to go somewhere by train you have to book a ticket one month in advance if the website allows you to book there's always a waiting list and god knows what in a civilized developed country let's say you're sitting in in madurai southern india let's say you wake up this morning or tomorrow morning and you decide for whatever reason i need to go to guwahati in a civilized country you should be able to just go to the station purchase a ticket on the spot sit on a train in the next half an hour and be in guwahati within 6 to 8 hours that is what a developed civilized country looks like today you have these extremely slow trains compared to bullet train standards that you can't even walk to a station and uh, book a ticket right away and get into a train you have to book a month in advance or god knows what how long that waiting list waiting time is so india is still in the in the almost in the colonial era most of the rail network that india has was built by the british for their extraction purposes for the purpose of plundering india india has not added much to it it is high time india creates its own 21st century bullet train infrastructure i it doesn't necessarily have to be bullet trains they need to be high speed trains and there must there sh- we need to have the kind of infrastructure where you can just walk into a station on whenever needed buy a ticket purchase a ticket and be on a train within the next 30 to 60 minutes and go wherever you need to go there should be no waiting list and all that nonsense that's what a civilized developed country looks like so that's what india needs so i don't think it's it's wrong spending there are certain yojanas that you speak about that are a complete waste of money i do not disagree with that but the bullet train infrastructure other infrastructures that india is building it is an investment for the future it is your children children and your grandchildren who will benefit from that but various uh, 
employment generation schemes and uh, whatever else that is a waste of money but that is because of political compulsions in india certain things the way the indian political system works you have to throw money lots of taxpayer money at uh, various sections of society in order to keep getting those votes that's just how it is it's what it's what the politicians created in the 1950s 60s 70s onwards you know and that's what that's the and we are reaping the the rewards of that system that horrible system so i i hope in the next in the coming decades all this will change leadership that's what we need okay ashish says you said gandhi was a british agent but khan abdul ghaffar khan was a great freedom fighter but khan abdul ghaffar khan also used non violent resistance to fight against the british and abdul ghaffar khan was known as the frontier gandhi because he followed the ideals of mahatma gandhi my dear friend ashish dar let me ask you something i agree khan abdul ghaffar khan was a great freedom fighter i agree i agree that he used non violent resistance to fight the british i agree i agree that he was called the frontier gandhi because he followed the ideals of mahatma gandhi i agree now please tell me something did khan abdul ghaffar khan succeed in achieving his objective of a unified india what was his objective his objective was a unified india a unified subcontinent he did not want partition he opposed partition he wanted a peaceful united india did he succeed in his objective he failed now please tell me why did he fail he failed because of the methods he adopted he adopted non violent resistance he adopted gandhi's ideals what happened what was the outcome he failed end of story okay <laughs> if gandhi was a british agent why did churchill hate him so much i would not agree that winston churchill hated gandhi we know what churchill said about gandhi right what do those pronouncements actually tell us they tell us that winston churchill had contempt for mohandas gandhi he was contemptuous towards gandhi he had no respect towards gandhi hating somebody and being contemptuous and disrespectful is two different things you can hate somebody but respect them do you know that the thing is churchill did not respect gandhi he was contemptuous towards gandhi it is not hatred it is a lack of respect that he consistently demonstrated towards gandhi now i want you to ask yourselves why churchill was unable to find any respect in his heart for mohandas gandhi please ask yourselves pakta <laughs> pakta says your face looks like the former president of pakistan yahya khan pathan <laughs> let's let's take a look at yahya khan pathan shall we hang in there let me share my screen yahya khan he was a pashtun yes what do you look like 
this is what this guy looks like looked like check out those eyebrows guys check out those eyebrows wow i certainly don't have that sort of eyebrows incredible eyebrows so this is what it looked like do i look like this <laughs> maybe i may look like that when i'm 70 years old or something there he is with richard nixon yahya khan anyhow so yeah there he is with the american president richard nixon another crook so the thing is see the, the thing is this i don't know if i look like him or not but the thing is that indians and pashtuns the people of afghanistan are the same people we have the same origins in a previous episode i've actually demonstrated that with genetic evidence from various research papers that conclusively show that the pathans the pashtuns have the same genetics the same origins as the rest of the indian population so if i look like somebody who has pashtun ethnicity or or somebody else it's no surprise it's no surprise we are the same people afghanistan is gandhar that's part of india that's historically been part of india for thousands of years from the mahabharat and pre mahabharat days from the vedic days and even before that so there's no surprise if the people of india and the pashtun people look similar because we are the same people we have the same ancestry okay um the question is by ahmed ilahi i am from pakistan i want to know your opinion about india pakistan confederation which we can call a union like the Euro- european union is it possible so let's understand what the eu is the european union it's a political union of a number of countries in europe and it is based upon certain shared values shared principles and share shared objectives so there is a great deal of political consonance between these between the the nations that make up the european union they are bound by they they have agreed to follow the same laws and uh, allow free access to each other's territory for for the citizens and so on and so forth so there is a great deal of commonality between them and they have they have agreed willingly to a uh, to adhere to certain rules principles laws and all that so there is political unity there right now let's take india and pakistan do we have that sort of political consonance cultural consonance do we have that religious consonance do we have that i have absolutely nothing against the people of pakistan i i have said this many times whether we are the same people we are the same roots the same past same ancestry and all that but india and pakistan are very different countries today very 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 different countries pakistan is a dictatorship run by an, by the pakistani army it is now essentially a vassal of china it sees india as the mortal enemy its its highest ambition is to conquer india someday and destroy whatever is left of indian culture in india these are undeniable facts so can we have a political uni- unity between india and pakistan given these circumstances it's not possible today it's not possible at all today i would like very much to see the indian subcontinent unite again in the future but this has to be a long term project this has to be a long term project it is not going to happen for let's say the next 100 years at least it's not going to happen for at least the next 100 years because of the inherent deep rooted cultural religious differences the the different um, mindsets the different world views 
you simply can't have um political unity or some kind of confederation because in any confederation you need open borders you need free flow of people it is not in india's interests to allow free flow of people from pakistan at any time in the near future or even the medium term future it's just not in india's interests and therefore good as this uh, suggestion is as good as as it is i mean it's it's uh, it's not uh, it's not practical as of now and it's not going to be practical in the next 50 to 100 years in the long run i would like to see india uh, india i mean the indian subcontinent reunite again and uh, reclaim its past glory and and uh, re uh, and uh, see its uh, see a proper revival of its original indigenous culture okay harshit rai says my question is why does the taliban not recognize the durand line so i may have spoken about this in the past i have several episodes on afghanistan but let's go into it once again because i am sure there are lots of new viewers who have who may not have seen that so let's talk about it so if you look at the past history of afghanistan of gandhar it was part of india it was a, it was a hindu buddhist uh, part of india right but then you had the turkic invasions and you had a, this change of culture forcible obviously all the monuments everything was destroyed all the temples stupas everything is in ruins now and there was the entire change in culture that was engineered by the turks in afghanistan so so afghanistan is essentially the original kashmir that's what happened there now so the people of afghanistan eventually became culturally different and then you had these invasions of india emanating from afghanistan in the past 1000 years right now in the 18th century you had this individual called ahmed shah abdali nowadays they call him ahmed shah durani he launched eight invasions into india with the objective of plundering the land in the 18th century right it caused a great amount of death and destruction in india a lot of plunder was taken out of india uh, by this individual this was in the 18th century then what happened is that you had this uh, you had this new political entity that emerged in northern india which was the kingdom of maharaja ranjit singh who lived in the late 18th and uh, first half of the 19th century right so he unified the various sikh factions and created the sikh kingdom or well, it's called the sikh empire though even though it was not very large it's called the sikh empire so he was one of the great kings and what he did was that he punished the afghans for all the depredations they had done in india all the plunder all the atrocities the the massacres etc he punished the afghans for that he went to war with the afghans he conquered a great deal of of afghan territory right and he created a very large uh, kingdom or empire in northern india which included which included significant portions of what is called pashtunistan so lots of pashtun territory he captured that and he incorporated that into his kingdom it came under his political dominion so the sikh empire included large parts significant portions of pashtun 
dominated Pashtun majority territory. Now, Maharaja Ranjit Singh died in 1839. Within a decade, the Sikh Empire crumbled, right? And the British took over. Now, what the British did was that they used the border of the Sikh Empire as their own border with Afghanistan, essentially. The border between British India and Afghanistan. So that became the foundation of the Durand Line. The Durand Line was delineated in 1893. It was drawn by the British and it was essentially the border of the Sikh Empire, which Maharaja Ranjit Singh had conquered. It included parts of Pashtun-dominated territory. So, that was then reconfirmed in the Anglo-Afghan Treaty of 1919, in which the Afghan kingdom, the king of Afghanistan, Amir of Afghanistan, he agreed with the British in this treaty to treat this Durand line as the boundary between Afghanistan, which was a sovereign independent uh, nation, and British India. So that is the history of the, of the Durand line, which is essentially the uh, border of the Sikh empire. Now, in 1947, Pakistan partitioned from India. It became a separate nation. And the Durand line was then used as the boundary between Pakistan and Afghanistan. But the people of Afghanistan, the Pashtuns, they have this historical grudge that this is our territory that you have taken over. Even though our king agreed in this treaty with the British, but now the British are gone. The British are gone. So why should we now recognize this Angrezi line on the map as <clears throat> our boundary? We have our people living on the other side in Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunwa and uh, Northwest Frontier Province, etc. Right? So they do not recognize the Durand, Durand line as the legitimate boundary between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that is the reason why the, the Taliban, which essentially are a Pashtun nationalist force, they do not recognize the Durand line as the legitimate boundary between Pakistan and Afghanistan. There is a big territorial dispute between Pakistan and Afghanistan, which the Taliban has inherited. And it is going to be fun and games to watch how it plays out over the next three to five years. Because the Taliban do not recognize that as the boundary between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and they have a territorial claim on Pakistan. So right now, the Pakistanis have engineered a certain kind of leadership in the Taliban. They have put their own people in leadership positions in the Taliban. How long will it last in this terrorist organization? Things will change. Things are going to change. Wait and watch. And then <laughs> we're going to have some fireworks over there. So... It's a matter of time, nothing more. Okay, we say that Shivaji, that Chhatrapati Shivaji is the father of the Indian Navy, but ships and boats were there even before him also. So why do we call him as the father of the Indian Navy? So you're absolutely right. Uh, the thing is that uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji was, and the Maratha Empire as a whole, where was the last sovereign Indian political entity that had its own navy and it had a very powerful navy very agile very lean and very powerful very efficient very effective naval force led by the great kanoji angre i believe right and uh, it defeated the portuguese and the british in many battles and all that so yes that was the last 
independent sovereign indian navy that we had before the british indian navy came into force india has always been a maritime nation when that individual uh, what's his name vasco da gama he went around the cape of good hope he had the biggest ship that the portuguese were able to build and he saw indian ships there were there were like three four times the size of his ship so that tells you the great history of indian ship building india was the greatest ship building nation on the surface of the planet for most of known history and even before that so if you talk about the great cholas the chola empire they had a powerful really powerful navy which they used to conquer the entirety of southeast asia they invaded southeast asia by putting uh, infantry soldiers etc on big naval ships and they were able to go all the way cross the bay of bengal go into cross the malacca strait get into the so called south china sea which is actually the champa sea and conquer all these territories there that's how powerful their navy was so clearly there was there were powerful naval forces before the marathas and even if you talk about uh, samudragupta the great the great emperor samudragupta he also had a powerful navy which he used to conquer much of if not most of southern india and bring it under his political dominion so he also used naval force and we have i mean uh, we had the great uh, the great kingdoms in kalinga which used navy which had uh, which had powerful naval capabilities we know that i have spoken about this in a, in a previous episode you will, you can see the short clip is the, which is there in my on this channel and so on and even in the vedas there are mentions of ships with a hundred oars that is a pretty big ship right and if you go to southeast asia cambodia etc where you have kalinga influence you will see depictions of great ancient indian ships uh, in those shaivite hindu kingdoms right so that's what you had that is the great history of indian ship building and indian naval power which which your hist- which your history textbooks and your teachers do not want you to know about so that these are the facts so india has always been a great great maritime nation and civilization okay what is the bare minimum requirement aditya aditya choudhary asks what is the bare minimum requirement of number of warships and submarines that uh, the indian navy should have to counter china and uh, other neighbors also number of planes the iaf needs okay let us go to the map to understand how to approach this question so this is the indian ocean region as you can see india dominates the indian ocean region india is in a, in the in the spectacularly god gifted position geographically in the indian, indian ocean region right so india is has been given this gift by the gods of being able to dominate this region if it so wishes so how many naval ships do you need to what's the question to counter china and other neighbors so if you look at the indian ocean region if you can see my mouse pointer this is this region that india calls its strategic backyard it is approximately i would say 10 million square kilometers or more than that right that is a big big piece of naval real estate 10 million square kilometers at least so that is what india needs to dominate in order to counter china and other neighbors so how many warships do you think we need to have 
patrolling this region at any given point in time i would say at least 100 warships at any given point in time because to dominate a region you need a visible presence there at all times constant patrolling constant presence you should be seen to be there yes there are indian ships everywhere that's what you need to have so to patrol this region of 10 million square kilometers you would need to have constant deployment of at least 100 warships which would include destroyers cruisers frigates corvettes etc and you would also need at least 30 submarines to be deployed in this in, in this huge region at any given point in time constantly only then can you dominate this region and consider it to be your strategic backyard now there is this this uh, there is a very hard fact in the navy which most people don't know about that for every three ships you have only one is actively deployed at any time because one ship will be at port undergoing repairs refueling renovation one ship will be either coming to the port or going towards its destination and one will be actively deployed so for every three ships for every three naval assets you have only one will be typically deployed at any given point in time so if india needs at least 100 warships to be deployed at any given point in time india actually needs to build at least 300 warships that's what india needs if you want at least 30 submarines to be deployed at any given point in time you must have at least 90 submarines in your navy so that is what india needs to do india is far 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 away from that right now india's naval strength is about 120 130 i'm not sure the exact numbers but many of those assets are not warships there are tankers there are other things and all and, and so on and so forth so india needs to invest significant funds into building a modern 21st century navy with the numbers that we just mentioned we need destroyers we need cruisers frigates corvettes missile boats are also a very useful addition to your navy and they are quite cheap actually if you know how to build them and submarines we need the various kinds of submarines including nuclear submarines which we are building but we are still far from the numbers that we need so that is the kind of situation that we would like to see in and if we get those numbers in our kitty then the chinese will not be able to interfere in our strategic backyard now when it comes to the iaf number of planes we need this we need 32 33 34 uh squadrons of planes a squadron is typically roughly 20 planes 22 right but i would say the more the better we don't need the latest most uh, high tech planes we can the thing is this quantity has a quality of its own if you look at the chinese air force they have large numbers many of those planes that they have are very antiquated planes but they still use them let's say you have a plane of the of the caliber of a mig 21 which is a 1960s plane but what if you have a thousand of those what if you have a thousand of those planes of the caliber of a mig 21 they will overwhelm any air force from our neighborhood so we need quantity we need quality we are developing high quality aircraft the the lca tejas mark 1a is soon to be uh, 
the mass production will start in a couple of years i think then you have the medium weight fighter we have the twin engine deck based uh, deck based fighter and then we have the amca the advanced uh, combat aircraft which will be a fifth generation stealth aircraft so all those are being developed but what we can do in the interim is to churn out lots of these these uh, tejas mark 1a aircraft you know we need numbers we need quality quality as well so i would say india needs at least at least 500 fighter aircraft and maybe we can also invest in heavy duty bombers you know maybe acquire some from russia or build our own so this is something that needs to happen in the next 10 20 years maximum in order to for india to become immune to the threats from its neighborhood okay dominic says israel recently carried out an air strike on the latakia port in syria but the s400s were not able to take down the israeli fighter jets as at the same time a russian plane russian plane was in the air is it the same with every s400 system in other countries too no it is not the same the s400 is not a low quality inferior system it is the most dangerous air defense system that currently exists now we have the s500 which is even better i hear and even the s550 is being developed but among the major air systems that we have the s400 is one of the best in its class it's far superior to the american system the israeli system etc so and it has this uh, friend or foe identification also inbuilt into it which ensures that even in a contested airspace when you have two kinds of fighter aircraft from two opposing forces engaged in air combat it will not shoot down your aircraft it will only target the enemy aircraft so it has all those capabilities so the question is when the israelis just a few days ago carried out at least one or two air strikes on the latakia port in syria why was no action taken why was the s400 there unable to take out the israeli planes because there is an s400 system de- deployed nearby it's a russian system the russians are operating it because the russians have geopolitical interests in syria see here's the situation there was this attempt about 10 years ago to to bring down the syrian president bashar al assad it was a western attempt to do that now vladimir putin and russia intervened in this and they succeeded in ensuring that the syrian government is not overthrown today the bashar al assad is quite secure in syria thanks to the russian uh, to russian help and the russians are operating various military bases etc in syria they have this s400 system near the latakia port where they also have some uh, naval assets from time to time right and then the israelis did this they bombed the port and there was no response from the s400 why is this it is because the russians chose not to bring down the israeli planes whether there was a russian plane in the air at that time or not is immaterial the s400 will not bring out bring down a russian plane the russians chose not to stop the israelis and not to target their planes they allowed the israelis to uh carry out this air strike or air strikes on the latakia port why is that they are on the side of the syrians right they are supporting bashar al assad then why did they allow the the israelis to take to carry out an air strike that is the question 
see here's the thing even iran has an interest in syria the iranians are also trying to play geopolitical games in syria they want to use parts of syria as their strategic backyard right and the russians do not want that now it is quite possible that the that the uh, iranians had sent some shipments to latakia port which included weapons ammunition etc because when this air strike happened that consignment which was targeted it burned for more than a day and there were explosions and all that so clearly there was some ammunition and weaponry in there maybe it came from iran and maybe the russians don't want any iranian uh, presence or hand in syria they want syria all to themselves right so maybe that's why they allowed the israelis to target the iranian shipment in this port so you know we don't have definitive answers but we know what's happening and based on we our knowledge of what's happening we can kind of reconstruct probable scenarios of why the s400 was not activated it is an extremely extraordinarily capable system it could have certainly taken down the israeli planes but the russians chose not to okay um i want to ask you i am currently pursuing aerospace engineering in an iit people say that for you to have a good career in this field you have to move out of india to work but i want to stay in india and work in organizations like isro drdo etc and help my country in some way please guide me you know first of all congratulations on pursuing this aerospace engineering in an iit that's a great that's a very good accomplishment in itself now your aim is to help india in some way and you want to do that by working in isro or drdo or one of these uh, major organizations so you know when you are young when you are a student and you are planning a career you need to have your main goal main objective which you can call plan a then you should also have plan b plan c and plan d so plan a for you clearly is that you want to uh, work in isro or drdo so make that your primary objective so to to get a job in isro or drdo i think you will need to get exceptionally high marks high grades in your iit coursework and if you are an outstanding student you should have a very good chance of uh, getting into isro or drdo when you apply as long as applications are open so that should be your primary objective plan a but that should not be your only plan if it fails then what do you do you should also have plan b plan c plan d so plan b plan c plan d you need to figure out what that is for you there is no harm if this plan a doesn't work there is no harm that in in trying to go abroad if you have good marks excellent grades then you will be you'll be able to work abroad you can do that for 5 years 10 years maybe gain some expertise gain some experience gain new skills and then maybe you can come back to isro or drdo so what i'm saying is that it's a very good thing that you want to work in isro drdo or whatever else you should make that your primary objective and invest all your time all your energy all your efforts into uh, succeeding in that but also have plan b plan c and plan d ready and well thought out in case plan a doesn't work because you know life 
has all kinds of uncertainties no matter how good you are sometimes thing, things may not work your way so always ensure that you have backup plans that's what i would say but i would like to wish you the best i hope that uh, you succeed in this objective of working in isro or drdo i wish you the best okay i don't want to reveal my name says i am a student of 17 to 19 age i feel i am not free i am constantly under the control of my parents i want to break free from all mental hurdles pressures the ruling attitude of my parents and this continuous feeling of humiliation but then comes the need of money and the basic necessities and i feel and i feel bogged down and i feel that i can't do anything and i have to face it am i immersed in my problem so i'm not able to understand how could i be free how can i make my environment and everyone very good and very sweet for me so you know what your parents are usually your best friends the overwhelming majority of parents want their children to succeed and they do everything they can to support their children and help them succeed in the best possible way now you know there are good people there are bad people in the world and similarly in some rare cases you may some people may have bad parents the, the, that that possibility is always there in some rare cases your parents may not be very good for you their attitudes may be stifling or maybe they are too controlling or maybe they want you to go in a certain direction which you don't want to go in it they, these these things happen yes it all depends on what cards the gods have dealt you sometimes you get unlucky and you face this sort of situation so the thing is you have stated the problem that you are facing and in the statement in the definition of the problem you also given the solution so you are right now 17 19 you are a student in a good organization in a good institution that is very good the problem you are facing the real problem you are facing is the need of money and basic necessities right so that is also the solution what you need to do is right now focus on your studies do very well in your studies get good grades get yourself a good job after that and that ends the problem which is the need of money which ties you <laughs> to uh, the whims and fancies of your parents so in case your parents are well too controlling and humiliating you or whatever like you say then what you need to do is invest the next 3 to 5 years in getting a stable good job which will eliminate any problem of money that you have and once you have the money to live your life on your own terms then well you will not have that problem anymore so your the problem that you've stated it contains the solution in itself so that's what i can say uh, you need to become financially independent and then you will be able to go in whatever direction you like all the best anmol says in the flare of leadership is deng xiaoping the greatest of all time especially of the 20th century well deng xiaoping is clearly one of the greats of the 20th century so uh, there are a number of people in the 20th century who can be considered to be great leaders right he is not the only one among the great leaders i can think of i can give names such as mustafa kemal atatürk of turkey who brought who essentially created the modern nation of turkey he he created the modern nation of turkey out of the ruins of the ottoman empire turkey was at the time under foreign occupation he led the turkish war of independence and he created this this 
independent united secular nation of turkey he is called ataturk which means the father of the turks so he is one of the greats of the 20th century then you have people like dwight eisenhower who fought as a soldier as a major general in the second world war as president he created nato so he had a huge impact on the world and it's his impact still continues today then you have whether you like it or not you have joseph stalin who defeated hitler and uh, and laid the foundations of the great uh, soviet union you know then you have lee kuan yew who transformed singapore from a third world nation to a very very prosperous first world nation in just 20 years then you have people like mao zedong well we, you may not like him but he clearly uh, created the modern nation of china under the chinese communist party he established the chinese communist party as the undisputed power in china then you have people like deng xiaoping deng xiaoping essentially transformed china from the days from the agrarian poverty stricken days of mao zedong into and he transformed it into a he 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 set in process the he set in motion the process of converting china into a modern a uh, developed nation so what you see in china today the transformation that we have seen over the past two decades it owes its genesis its its roots to the uh, work of deng xiaoping and what deng xiaoping did was he tried to emulate the actions of li kuan yew so there was a great deal of learning in china from the policies of li kuan yew which were implemented in singapore and then you have somebody like ronald reagan also that i can think of who is maybe the last great american president so these are some of the people who are the greats of the 20th century they have in in many ways shaped the world that we live in today is deng shopping the greatest of all time of the 20th century he is one of the greats i would not call him the one person who is head and shoulders above everybody else but he is clearly one of the greats Okay, Kayan Dothiwala says greetings from the parts of Bombay. Greetings, greetings, sir. Why are the Finns and the Russians not considered European? On my visit to Norway, I was told that only blonde, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed individuals are considered true Europeans, and any European with swarthy features like dark hair or dark eyes is said to have some sort of foreign admixture. that's why they believe that spaniards and greeks look different from swedes as they are very close to north africa and have swarthy features you know the definition of a european is somebody who lives in europe so europe is the western part of eurasia the uh, boundary is typically the caucasus mountain region right so anybody who lives west of that is by definition european now the definition that you are uh, referring to that you have heard from some people is a very racist definition of europeans that only people with blonde hair and blue eyes are europeans what nonsense there are people in the celtic regions of europe the western europe who many of whom have have red hair are they not europeans if you go to ireland scotland there are lots of people with red hair are they also i mean are they no longer europeans because of the color of their hair the greeks I mean Greece the Greek civilization is considered to be the foundation of western civilization most greeks have light brown skin and dark hair and dark eyes so 
you know this definition doesn't really hold some racist people like uh, like the nazis for instance they would have held such such ideas such ideas were in currency during the nazi age and all that but uh, i don't this is a mainstream view at all if some people hold such views those are very regressive and very racist views so they are being racist towards their fellow europeans based on their features these swarthy features so if you have darkish skin light brown skin then you are no longer european that way i mean so that's a very racist attitude to have i suppose some people in europe may have that but if that is to be held as true then only a small portion of europe would actually count as europe which is nonsense so you know that's what i can say about this it's a very racist attitude to have if someone said this you know ashish says is china a dharmic country because it is a buddhist country so china does have the largest buddhist population of any nation in the world more than 200 million practicing buddhists in china but china is not a buddhist country china is officially a communist country a socialist country the official doctrine is atheism that's the official doctrine of the chinese communist party right china is officially an atheist country nowadays they tolerate the practice of buddhism by a significant portion of the population which is like 1/6 or 1/7th of their population but the overwhelming majority of chinese they profess atheism and the official doctrine policy is atheism therefore china is not a buddhist country and therefore china is not a dharmic country a country can be considered to be dharmic if its official policies are dharmic policies the communist party's policies are the opposite of dharmic policies and therefore china cannot be considered to be a dharmic country india cannot be considered to be a dharmic country india is officially a secular country india is one of the most hindu phobic countries in the world india itself is not a dharmic country sri lanka can be considered to be a dharmic country because its official uh, state religion so to say is buddhism it is enshrined in the constitution of sri lanka so sri lanka is a dharmic country yes nepal was a dharmic country when it was a hindu monarchy that was destroyed by the indian government's interference so today nepal itself is, is not a dharmic country you could say that thailand is a dharmic country because it is i think officially or 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 quasi officially a buddhist country and so on so the answer in short is china is not a dharmic country by any means whatsoever sujay says where today's kerala and madagascar geographically connected millions of years ago and yes and if yes in what ways are they similar to each other today a uh, nice question let's go to a map okay so the indian subcontinent about 100 million years ago was part of the continent of africa and madagascar was also attached to the indian continent so if you see the map here if you can see madagascar if you can look upon madagascar as a piece in a jigsaw puzzle you can see that it, it will fit into the, into the into the eastern coast of africa the shape is very similar 
and if you see the shape of madagascar it can also fit in the western coast of india uh the northern tip of madagascar could easily fit into the uh into the uh, this region the khambath region the gulf of khambath region of india so you can see these these pieces of geography they fit together so what happened is that about 90 million or so years ago because of tectonic activity the indian subcontinent detached from africa and over tens of millions of of years it traveled across the indian ocean and it eventually slammed into eurasia and that collision is still continuing and this collision has caused the emergence of the great himalayan mountain range right so it's not just kerala it's the entirety of western india which was once attached to madagascar so in what way what similarities do you see there uh, let me see the question again the question is in what ways are they similar to each other i think if you would do soil composition tests etc you would find similarities between the soil of madagascar and the soil of the western coast the western coastal region of india maharashtra karnataka kerala even gujarat you will find similarities in the soil composition in the kind of geology that you have of course while india was floating in the indian ocean it passed over the reunion hotspot and that gave rise to the enormous volcanic activity of the deccan traps so that kind of changed the geological the geomorphological characteristics of the deccan region but you will still find some similarities between the western coastal regions of india and madagascar if you do uh geological tests and soil composition tests and you may even find similar fossils from more than 100 years ago 100 million years ago in these two regions so that's what one can say about this okay arpan says what are your views on the new nalanda university has the project already failed as the chinese have already beat us in it by starting their own institution if they can do if they can we can do a comeback and so on since excluding are they flawed by excluding sanskrit from the curriculum okay so i think this university the new nalanda university let's let's take a look at what we have let me share my screen and let's do a google search so nalanda university new nalanda what do we have what does google search tell us nalanda university okay so you have a nalanda university here and uh, yeah it says in first september 2014 so the commencement of the first academic year of the modern nalanda university with 15 students Let's look at what Wikipedia has to say. Once again, disclaimer: Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information, but let's just take a look at it for the sake of simplicity and brevity. So, post-independence Mahavihara doesn't look like there's much, much information here. Okay, this is the new Nalanda University. It was established in 2014. the first chancellor of the university was the so called nobel laureate amartya sen not so called he was certainly a nobel laureate and this individual who is an ultra marxist was made the first chancellor of this university 
right? And this modern Nalanda University, it offers master's degrees and it offers PhD courses, right? Under the modern Indian education system, which is, which is actually a continuation of the 19th century colonial education system. So the new university they have created, they have given it the name of Nalanda. They appointed a Marxist as the first uh, chancellor of this university and they are offering courses according to the colonial British education system. So what's the point of having this university, which is just another mediocre Indian university run by Marxists? What is the point of calling it Nalanda? If you want to name a new institution Nalanda, it should, it should be run according to the principles of the original Nalanda University. It should not be run by Marxists. And it should offer education in the same format as or a similar format, maybe a 21st century uh, version of the original format of the original Nalanda University. So none of that has happened. And therefore, yes, that institution has failed. It's a failure. Calling it with a certain title is not going to make it great. What makes an institution great is the quality of the people who run the institution. And when you have somebody like Amartya Sen running a university, it's failed and doomed from the start. I don't know who is the current uh, vice chancellor. It will be somebody pulled out of the depths of the mediocrity of India, of the modern Indian education system. And therefore, it's, it's, it's a useless and pointless university. They should not name it Nalanda. It's an insult to the original Nalanda University. Uh, Gokul says, in ancient India, how were people who had done crimes punished? You see, ancient India is thousands of years. And over thousands of years, you have differences in, in, the, way, in the way things are done. So let's say you're talking about the Mauryan era, for instance, during uh, the time of Chandragupta Maurya and Ashoka. At that time, the, the punishments were given according to the principles of Vishnu Gupta Chanakya, Kautilian principles. So you had harsh punishments for bad crimes. If you if you if somebody committed murder, they would be given the death sentence. But they were given, I think a person sentenced to death was given three days to meet their family and say their final goodbye. So it was quite compassionate in that manner. But justice was sweet, swift, and justice was often harsh. Right? Now, when you go to the Gupta era, during the, during the time of Kumara Gupta, Skanda Gupta, etc. Or, uh, or what's his name, Samudra Gupta, etc. So at that time, the, the I think who was the Chinese traveler? Fahian was it? The, yeah, this guy Fahian I think came to India. He traveled extensively around India in the Gupta era, and he noticed he wrote that uh, the punishments were very, very, uh, very modest, very gentle. Uh, the death penalty was unheard of and there was very little crime in India. So that's how it was during the Gupta era. Very, uh, very, very generous or very gentle punishments, very mild punishments and crime itself was very less. So it all depends on how efficiently you run the state, how efficient your governance is. If you are really efficient and if you are very swift in dealing out punishments, then most likely you don't have to give very harsh punishments. 
So it depends from time to time. In certain eras, you had harder, harsher punishments. In certain eras, you had very gentle punishments, very mild punishments. So that's the kind of comparison I can offer you. I'm sure you can do more research and, and find more details about various other eras of Indian history and how things were done in those times. Ishwar says, the Philippines are going to buy Brahmos missiles from India. What will be the impact on China? And secondly, the Pakistanis are going to buy J-10C fighter jets from China. We know the Rafale is better, but how is the J-10C compared to the F-16 with the Pakistanis already used? Okay, uh, I also heard the news of the Filipinos. Uh, they are on the verge of a deal with the Indian government, which will... Uh, enable them to acquire the Brahmos supersonic cruise missile. So that's a good thing for the Filipinos. It will give them uh, it will give them a great deal of deterrence against the Chinese. But you know what? It all depends on how you use the weapons that you have at your disposal. You may have the best weapons, but if your politicians are weak need, then your weapons are of no use. So it depends on how the Filipinos choose to deploy and use this missile system, assuming that the sale is, is done. So I think the Filipino President Duterte has an ambivalent kind of relationship with China. He is a kind of strong man kind of, kind of personality. And uh, he has at times shown an inclination to, uh, to be willing to talk with China and have some sort of, uh, have good relations. But he also has... Uh, he is also a Filipino nationalist, so he wants to make the Philippines a strong power in the region, or a strong regional power. So it all depends on how it is used, but it will certainly give the Philippines an amount of deterrence and leverage against China. Because the Chinese are claiming parts of the Philippines also, the parts of Filipino territorial waters as part of their nine-dash line and all that. So it will give the Filipinos a significant amount of leverage. Now, the, the Pakistani deal to buy J-10C fighter planes from China. There also is a recent development. Now, we know that the Rafale jet is far, far better than the J-10C. The Rafale is a heavier fighter plane. It has much more thrust. It has a better radar system, better radar capabilities. It has a better weapons package compared to the J-10C. So there's no comparison between these two uh, aircraft. Now, the Pakistanis also use F-16s, which is a 1970s vintage fighter plane. It's still a good fighter plane, but it's an old one. So if you compare the, J the J-10C and the F-16, the F-16 is still a superior aircraft compared to the J-10C. So why is, is Pakistan buying this Chinese aircraft, which is not that great? It's because they have no other option. Uh, when it comes to the F-16, there are lots of restrictions to its use. Uh, the Americans won't allow the, the, the Pakistanis to use it in certain ways, which kind of ties the Pakistani hands behind their back and behind its back in some cases. For instance, American weapon systems always have what's called, what is it called? It's called a kill switch. So if you use that weapon system in a certain way, the Americans can disable it remotely. And uh, the Pakistanis don't have the know-how to disable the kill switch. 
So that's why they are searching for other alternatives. They don't have a great deal of money, so they will have to buy whatever the Chinese offer them. And that is why they are acquiring the J10C. So it will add to the numbers that they have. I think they're acquiring, I don't know, 20, 30 of these aircraft, maybe. So it's because they have no other option. That's why they are acquiring the J10C. It's not a great aircraft, like you have rightfully pointed out. Okay, uh, Lavia Sony says, why is our system failing to counter terrorism in Kashmir? I know that the situation is better than before, but still many innocent people are dying for just living there. So you are right, uh, the situation is much better in recent years compared to previous years when Kashmir was uh, not doing so well and we were allowing the Indian government was allowing all kinds of nonsense to happen there. So in recent years, the situation is much better. There are no major terrorist activities. You have all these Pakistani terrorists being eliminated on a routine basis. There are these encounters that happen from time to time, but we know what is the outcome of all these encounters. And unfortunately, sometimes you have civilian casualties because of the terrorist activities. So why is our system failing to counter this? See, when somebody is sick, Let's let's take this the case of an individual who has tuberculosis, for instance. When a person has tuberculosis, they will have a fever and they will have typically a persistent cough. So how should you treat this disease? Should a doctor offer the patient paracetamol or aspirin for the fever and a cough syrup for the cough? Will that solve the problem? No. So you just, if you if you administer paracetamol or aspirin and a cough syrup to the patient, you are treating the symptoms. You are merely treating the symptoms, but you are not treating the root cause, which is the tuberculosis bacillus that is present in this person's body and it has overwhelmed the immune system. So to solve the problem and to cure the patient, you have to administer antibiotics that can destroy the tuberculosis bacillus, the bacterium that causes the disease. And that has to be administered for a certain period of time. Then you can solve the problem once and for all. Similarly, we are doing all these anti-terrorist activities, etc. in the Kashmir region. We are treating the symptoms what is the root cause? The root cause is Pakistan. Terrorism will end in Kashmir when we resolve the Pakistan issue. So that's what needs to happen. That is why terrorism still persists in Kashmir from time to time, sporadically. To address the question and to, and to resolve the problem once and for all, we have to go to the root cause of the problem and eliminate the root cause of the terrorism, which is the Pakistani army. And Pakistan, well, the Pakistani state. So when we do that, the problem will be solved and the people of Kashmir will be able to finally live in peace for the first time in 70 plus years. Tanvir, Tanvir Sheikh says, uh, does India have the capability, the capacity of developing an anti-nuke shield program? So when you talk about an anti-nuke shield, you're talking about a missile defense system. So we have acquired the S-400 system, but it's 
a foreign purchase. We have acquired it from the Russians. It's an excellent missile defense system. But the question is, is India capable of developing an indigenous missile defense system, ballistic missile defense system? So when it comes to cruise missiles, those are not very fast missiles. And once you detect a cruise missile, so detecting and destroying a cruise missile is the same thing as detecting and destroying an enemy aircraft. You need radar systems and you need to monitor your borders continuously. And when you detect a cruise missile, you go and address it the same way you would address the same way you would deal with an incoming enemy fighter aircraft. But when it comes to ballistic missiles, the entire technology and our outlook is different. So ballistic missiles are called ballistic missiles because they have this parabolic ballistic or quasi-ballistic trajectory, right? And that is the question. So you all know about the recent anti-satellite test that India did. India tested an anti-satellite weapon. So what India essentially did was we had a defunct satellite in orbit around the earth. It was our satellite, an Indian satellite. It was in low to medium earth orbit. And we shot a newly developed missile at that satellite, intercepted it and destroyed it. That's what India did. So what India achieved is essentially like shooting a bullet with another bullet. That's the level of precision you need to have an effective anti-satellite weapon. And the technology is exactly the same as what you would need to destroy an incoming ballistic missile. It's more or less the same technology. The level of precision is more or less the same, right? Because a satellite in Earth orbit, it travels at an extremely high velocity, very high speed, similar to a ballistic missile's speed. So India has demonstrated anti-satellite capabilities, which means that India also has anti-ballistic missile capabilities. And we already have our own system, uh, the Prithvi Air Defense System. It's a, it's a two-level two defense system. It consists of two, two different missiles. One missile will target incoming ballistic missiles at high altitudes, 80 to 100 kilometers, I think. And the second layer is a different missile, which will target incoming missiles at about 40 kilometers altitude. So in case the first missile fails, the second missile will do the job. So it's a double tire, two tire system that we already have in place. It has been tested. It works. We don't quite know exactly what the development status is right now because we don't want to publicize it too much. Maybe we have a three tire system or maybe we have an advanced system that we are not talking about. I'm just speculating. I'm not privy to what's really happening. But we have already uh, demonstrated the ability to shoot down incoming ballistic missiles in the 2000s, before 2010. And even after 2010, I think 2012, 13, 14, we had certain tests of the system. I am not quite sure recently what is what has been done, but obviously we are developing the technology further. So we do have the technology to take down incoming ballistic missiles, nuclear missiles. And maybe, maybe it, it may possibly be at an advanced level of maturity by now, because we are now in the 2020s and one expects that technology matures as uh, the time goes by.
so i think we are in good hands uh, and yeah so india does have the capacity of taking down incoming ballistic missiles with its own technology <laughs> uh do vampires exist or existed or did they exist in the past so what's a vampire according to the standard uh, standard lore a vampire is a person who has died and who has come back from the dead an undead person and this person only comes out at night because the sunlight burns their skin and they sustain themselves by preying on living human beings and drinking their blood so that is the the standard definition of vampire from the bram bram stoker school right dracula and all that so you know what that is obviously not possible people cannot come back from the dead undead people cannot exist it's biologically not possible from whatever we know of biology it's simply not possible otherwise you would have vampiric animals as well if such things were possible so those mythical magical vampires clearly don't exist okay that is <laughs> simply not there you have these ancient uh, tradition the ancient lore in transylvania etc about vampires well i think it's just folk tales and all that uh, there is no evidence that vampires actually exist there's another category of vampire that people talk about they it's called the psychic vampire it is certain individuals who who suck out all the energy from any room they enter if you interact with them for some time you feel all drained and drained of energy so those those are psychic vampires or or energy vampires so that's also again kind of pseudo science but there are some people who have that effect right you talk to them and after the interaction you feel all tired and drained that person is just too demanding too narcissistic too self-centered and too aggressive so those people are called energy vampires or psychic vampires and those people we all know some of them either among our colleagues or or friends or family or whatever you know so everybody has met such people so so those vampires do exist you know some some people are like that okay hq says if genes contribute to a person's height why are gen z indians taller than their parents despite having the same genes and abhishek has answered come plan <laughs> okay very interesting question and answer but this answer does have a grain of truth in it so there are two components to how tall you can be nature and nurture nature is the genes that you carry there is a certain maximum height that is programmed into your genetics so that is the maximum height you can uh, when a child is born there is a certain programming in their genes of the maximum height they can achieve but they are not guaranteed to grow that tall so what makes them grow to a certain height it's the kind of upbringing and upbringing they have the kind of diet they eat and the kind of activity they level they have while they are growing so a child who eats a very nutritious balanced healthy diet and who also is very physically active who engages in sports or athletic activities that child will grow and reach close to the genetic maximum potential that they have but a child who doesn't eat a good diet eats junk food all the time too much sugar and is sedentary doesn't engage in athletic activities etc that child will not reach the, its its genetic maximum right so indians have a certain genetic limit which which most indians have not reached 
because in the past in the past 2 3 in the past 1000 years india's diet was very poor we were under foreign occupation the british engineered hundreds of artificial famines so indians underwent went through a couple of centuries of near starvation after independence india has been a very poor nation a low income nation a third world nation the diet has been very poor so that's why indians are short today right but now that india is finally be- becoming a reasonably it's beginning to take its first steps towards prosperity so the overall diet is improving and that's why the new kids the gen z zoomer kids today you will see that they are typically taller than their parents india's genetic maximum is quite higher quite taller than what we see on average in india today for instance we talk about the great yamnaya invaders of europe who had indian origins they were all approximately 6 feet tall very very tall strong muscular guys right so that is an example of the kind of genetics you had in india in india in ancient days recently they found some uh, some skeletons in up from 30 40000 years ago the average height was about 6 feet 1 inches so that kind of tells you the kind of genetic uh, programming that our ancestors had and which we, which we also carry so it's all about the kind of diet you eat as a kid and the kind of activity levels you have as a kid if you eat good diets and if you are physically very active you got to get tall taller otherwise you won't that's how it goes who is david sassoon was it good for indians david sassoon was a drug dealer so the history in brief of david sassoon is that he was a baghdadi jew he was he was from a prominent jewish family in baghdad uh they think i i think this family was they were the treasurers of the of the king or whoever it was in baghdad and but because of the, they were they were jews they were persecuted so they fled from baghdad they first went to persia and from persia they came to india and they settled in mumbai which was then called bombay and they were the treasurers of that region of baghdad so i suppose they brought with them lots of plundered wealth so david sassoon was the patriarch of this family because of the all the wealth that he brought with him from from baghdad he was able to establish a big business in india in bombay he became one of the prominent drug dealers under the auspices of the east india company the drug dealing happened with china so uh, even today in shanghai there is this building which has the name of the sassoons so they established a big trading center in shanghai right this was part of the, of the of the chinese century of humiliation so there was this big competition happening in china at the time among indians in the drug de- drug trade there were at least 23 other companies all run by parsis parsis in shanghai at the time so david sassoon was able to defeat all of them and he became the biggest drug dealer opium trade in china and that made him fabulously wealthy it made his family fabulously wealthy and uh they became one of the wealthiest families in all of asia and when you are a drug dealer like pablo escobar or somebody you will do a lot of charitable work small small charitable works just to make it look to the public like you know you are a good person you're doing you're giving something back to society so david sassoon uh, opened some library in bombay david sassoon library and opened some synagogues and did some other public works just to make it look like you know he's a good guy no one knew what he's doing in shanghai 
So he was a drug dealer. The family's wealth and fortune came from the drug trade. Later, they all emigrated out of India because they had so much money and they all became part of the British aristocracy. They were invested with certain titles, baronet, etc. <clears throat> So that that in short is the story of David Sassoon, drug dealer, nothing else. Was it good for Indians? <laughs> is that even a question? He did nothing for India. Okay, this is the final question for today. What are your views on Kalicharan? Kalicharan was fantastic. He is fantastic. He, yeah, he is fantastic, fabulous. Fabulous West Indies left-handed batsman. Brilliant attacking batsman <laughs> from the 1970s and 1980s. That's one of the very best West Indies batsmen of that time. His average was in the mid-40s, but he was very good, very attacking, very aggressive. Great player of fast bowling. He took Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson to the cleaners several times. See the videos on YouTube. So I'm a big fan of Alvin Kalicharan. <laughs> That's what I have to say about Kalicharan. All right, gentlemen, ladies, friends, brothers, sisters, all of you, thank you so much for all the questions. Wonderful talking to all of you. And we will have one more session tomorrow in which I will take live chat questions. So we begin the new year with this session. I wish you all the very best in this new year. I wish you great success, great prosperity, great health, and a lot of happiness. Thank you very much for your viewership, for your support. And let's keep going. See you tomorrow. Take care. Bye.